Alan Austin, as nervous as a kitten, went up certain dark and creaky stairs in the neighborhood of Pell Street and peered about for a long time on the dime landing before he found the name he wanted written obscurely on one of the doors. He pushed open the door as he had been told to do and found himself in a tiny room which contained no furniture but a plain kitchen table, a rocking chair, and an ordinary chair. On one of the dirty buff-colored walls were a couple of shelves containing in all perhaps a dozen bottles and jars. An old man sat in the rocking chair reading a newspaper. Alan, without a word, handed him the card he had been given. Sit down, Mr. Austin, said the old man very politely. I'm glad to make your acquaintance. Is it true, asked Alan, that you have a certain mixture that has, er, quite extraordinary effects? My dear sir, replied the old man, my stock and trade is not very large. I don't deal in laxatives and teething mixtures, but such as it is, it is varied. I think nothing I sell has effect which could be precisely described as ordinary. Well, the fact is, began Alan. Here, for example, interrupted the old man, reaching for a bottle from the shelf. Here is a liquid as colorless as water, almost tasteless, quite imperceptible in coffee, wine, or any other beverage. It is also quite imperceptible to any known method of autopsy. Do you mean it is a poison? cried Alan, very much horrified. Call it a glove cleaner if you like, said the old man indifferently. Maybe it will clean gloves. I've never tried. One might call it a life cleaner. Lives need cleaning sometimes. I want nothing of that sort, said Alan. Probably it is just as well, said the old man. Do you know the price of this? For one teaspoonful, which is sufficient, I ask five hundred dollars. Never less, not a penny less. I hope all your mixtures are not as expensive, said Alan apprehensively. Oh dear no, said the old man. It would be no good charging that sort of price for a love potion, for example. Young people who need a love potion very seldomly have $5,000. Otherwise, they would not need a love potion. I'm glad to hear that, said Alan. I look at it like this, said the old man. Please a customer with one article, and he will come back when he needs another. Even if it is more costly, he will save up for it if necessary. So, said Alan, you really do sell love potions? If I did not sell love potions, said the old man, reaching for another bottle, I should not have mentioned the other matter to you. It is only when one is in a position to oblige that one can afford to be so confidential. And these potions, said Alan, they are not just, er... Oh no, said the old man, their effects are permanent and extend far beyond the mere casual impulse. But they include it. Oh yes, they include it. Bountifully, insistently, everlastingly. Dear me, said Alan, attempting a look of scientific detachment. How very interesting. But consider the spiritual side, said the old man. I do indeed, said Alan. For indifference, said the old man, they substitute devotion for scorn, admiration. Give one tiny measure of this to the young lady. Its flavor is imperceptible. In orange juice super cocktails, and however gay and giddy she is, she will change altogether. She want nothing but solitude in you. I can hardly believe it, said Alan. She is so fond of parties. She will not like them any more, said the old man. She will be afraid of the pretty girls you may meet. She will actually be jealous, cried Alan in rapture. Of me, yes, she will want to be everything to you. She is already, only she doesn't care about it. She will, when she has taken this, she will care intensely. You will be her sole interest in life. Wonderful, cried Alan. She will want to know all you do, said the old man. All that has happened to you during the day, every word of it. She will want to know what you are thinking about. Why you smile suddenly. Why you are looking sad. That is love, cried Alan. Yes, said the old man. How carefully she will look after you. 
She will never allow you to be tired, to sit in a drought, to neglect your food. If you are an hour late, she will be terrified. She will think you are killed or that some siren has caught you. I can hardly imagine Diana like that, cried Alan, overwhelmed with joy. You will not have to use your imagination, said the old man. And by the way, since there are always sirens, if by any chance He had begun to read the novel a few days before. He had put it aside because of some urgent business, opened it again on his way back to the estate by train. He allowed himself a slowly growing interest in the plot and the drawing of characters. That afternoon, after writing a letter to his agent and discussing the manager of his estate, a matter of joint ownership, he returned to the book in the tranquility of his study which looked out upon the park with its oak, sprawled in his favorite armchair with his back to the door, which would otherwise have bothered him as an irritating possibility for intrusion. He let his left hand caress once and again the green velvet upholstery, and set to reading the final chapters. Without effort, his memory retained the names and images of the protagonist. The illusion took hold of him almost at once. He tasted the almost perverse pleasure of disengaging himself, line by line, from all that surrounded him, and feeling at the same time that his head was relaxing comfortably against the green velvet of the armchair, with its high back, that the cigarettes were still within reach of his hand, that beyond the great windows the afternoon air danced under the oak trees in the park, word by word, immersed in the sore dilemma of the hero and the heroine, letting himself go toward where the images came together and took on color and movement. He was witness to the final encounter in the mountain cabin. The woman arrived first, apprehensive. Now the lover came in, his face cut by the backlash of a branch. Admirably, she staunched the blood with her kisses, but he rebuffed her caresses. He had not come to repeat the ceremonies of a secret passion, protected by a world of dry leaves and furtive paths through the forest. The dagger warned itself against his chest, and underneath pounded liberty, ready to spring. A lustful, yearning dialogue raced down the pages, like a rivulet of snakes, and one felt that it had all been decided from eternity. Even those caresses which writhed about the lover's body, as though wishing to keep him there, to dissuade him from it, sketched abominably the figure of that other body. It was necessary to destroy. Nothing had been forgotten. Alibis, unforeseen hazards, possible mistakes. From this hour on, each instant had its use minutely assigned. The cold-blooded double re-examination of the details was barely interrupted for a hand to caress a cheek. It was beginning to get dark. Without looking at each other now, rigidly fixed upon the task which awaited them, they separated at the cabin door. She was to follow the trail that led north, on the path leading in the opposite direction. He turned for a moment to watch her running with her hair let loose. He ran in turn, crouching among the trees and hedges, till he could distinguish in the yellowish fog of dusk the avenue of trees leading up to the house. The dogs were not supposed to bark, and they did not bark. The estate manager would not be there at this hour, and he was not. He went up the three porch steps and entered. Through the blood galloping in his ears came the woman's words. First a blue parlor, then a gallery, then a carpeted stairway at the top. Two doors. No one in the first bedroom, no one in the second. The door of the salon, and then the knife in his hand. The 